Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, then um, it's my privilege to introduce my friend Cornell. He's going to be sharing the word with us this morning. And um, yeah, Cornell, I, I remember the first time I met him was in third year Bible school in Stellenbosch. And he was that guy who asked all the difficult questions. He, he was that guy, you know. He was <laughs> when Cornell put up his hand, you you almost flinched, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it tells because even now he's asking the difficult questions, and and God is giving him answers and enabling him to give answers to other people as well. Um, and so, yeah, he's he's always loved the word and been curious about the word and and studied the word diligently. And and I think. Um, yeah, God is, that's, that's one of the reasons why God can use him like this to, to, to minister his word. So thanks, Cornell. We look forward to hear what, what the Lord has to share with us through you. Thank you, Annie, for another introduction I'll never be able to live up to. A real privilege to be here with you um, this morning. Really good to see the Kriers again. I guess you guys are the Krugers now. Seeing as you live in in Britain, um, yeah, but but really good to be here. Always a privilege to share with uh, with the church, and a real privilege to be a part of this community. We were away for a while down in the terrible George with all its mountains and sea line and everything. Really missed Joburg, and it's good to be back. And um, really, we miss the people. We love the people. And we actually, me and my wife, found out towards the end of um, last year that we're also going to be parents, that we're becoming. Thank you. Yeah, so that's really exciting. We're having a baby boy in July, um, which is around the corner and immensely scary in one sense and very exciting in another. And I was walking with a friend of mine uh, recently in, uh, in Ilovo where we stay, and we were talking about this, and he, he asked me this question. He just said, how do you feel about becoming a parent? And I said to him, well, you know, in, in, in a sense, I, I've heard people say that, like, it's one of those pivotal moments in your life where something changed, right? People hold their baby for the first time, and this wave of responsibility kind of seems to wash over them. And I really hope that that happens to me, right? <laughs> because I realize that there are some areas in my life that I need uh, more responsibility. It feels to me that in some ways I'm not ready to be a parent. Um, because I think about m- my parents growing up, or at least the way I perceive them, they just knew stuff, right? They knew what was what, and they knew what to do in certain situations. And I don't know, like, I don't feel ready for that, but by the grace of God, we'll, we'll get there, hopefully. And, um, and you, know, th- you know, thinking about that, it, it, being a parent obviously is a responsibility because we need to teach our children how to, how to live and how to live well. We all want to set them up for success. But above all of that, my biggest hope and my biggest prayer is that my children will follow the Lord. That like Henny told us, you know, that they, would make, that they would have a meeting with God, that they would make a decision for Him. And I recognize that that is not something that I can force down upon them. Right? It's not a decision that I can make for them, but I do have a, a co-responsibility with my community, with my church, and maybe the biggest one in their lives, to prepare them for that, to teach them what, what the Bible says, to teach them 
the gospel and the word of God and to prepare them to receive the gospel. So I've been thinking about that. How do we prepare someone to receive the gospel? Where, where should we start? And, um, and that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning, our need for the gospel or, or why we need to be saved. Now, just a, a disclaimer, right, as I start my sermon, that I've been working through Romans 1, 2, and 3 recently, and it's just confirmed my, 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 this notion that I had that theory, uh, theo- theologically I am really a rookie, right? I, I don't understand all of the concepts in there, or I don't have all the answers about it. So today's sermon is really an introduction um, to some of, these, some of these concepts. It's something to start us thinking. It's something to, to, to encourage you to go deeper, and, and me as well. This process has been something that encourages me to go deeper um, into this, right? Because that's what I love about the Bible. It's simple enough that we can understand, anyone can understand what it's saying. Anyone can understand um, the, the concept that it presents, but it's also deep enough that you can study it for your entire life and you will never reach the bottom, right? It goes on and it's applicable to every situation, every um, time, every era. We can, we can take the truths of the Bible and we can apply it. Okay, so I'm going to start off by praying for us. If you guys will close your eyes with me. So, Father, we just thank you this morning that we can come together um, in your name, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here. Holy Spirit, we recognize that, that we need you desperately, God. That we need you so desperately, Lord, to show us, God, what it means, what, what Jesus did for us on the cross, to show us our need for salvation, God, and to show us what the gospel means um, in our lives, Father, and, and how to apply it. And we just want to ask you to do that this morning, Holy Spirit, as we, as we study your word, as we, as we talk about it, God, we know that, that we need you to, to come and light that fire in our hearts, God, and we trust you for that, Lord. And we open our hearts to you, Father. We, we ask that you, will, that you will teach us your word, God, that you will teach us your truth, that you will set us apart as a people, God, who, who, who do not try and to earn, Lord, your salvation, but who, who understand your word and who, who are open to receive the gift, Lord, that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, in, in one of my previous sermons, I started talking about this concept of, of the moral law, and I, I went a bit deeper there. But, you know, maybe a good place to start is to, is to talk about this, this kind of finding that we have when we come into the world that there seems to be this this law of morality, that people can kind of agree that there is a right and a wrong way to live, right? The, the trivial example I always use is once I was in a parking lot and I was, there was a car, someone loading bags into their, um, into their car, and I, I was standing there, in, sitting there in my car, and I put on my indicator and waited patiently for three minutes, and just as this car reversed out, another little mini came and took my spot, right, that I'd been waiting for. And I kind of objected to this unseen law of morality. I was like, you can't do that. That's wrong, right? And I would hope that that person could agree with me that, that, that their action was not kind of in line with how we should act. Now, that might be a trivial, trivial example, but that obviously goes on to where we get things like our, the laws of our country from, right? Like, we know that it's wrong to kill somebody. We know that it's wrong um, to steal. We know that there, there, are, there are consequences for that. And there seems to be this, this kind of unwritten, in a sense, law that we understand that, hey, there, there is a standard in the universe. There's a right way for us to act, and we expect people to act according it, 
according to it, and we expect ourselves to act according to it. But of course, a very good question to ask is where does that law come from, right? Because a law needs to come from, from, from somewhere. I think that a law, to be legitimate, actually needs a source, but it also needs an enforcer. What happens if you don't enforce a law? In South Africa, we've got ETOLs, right? <laughs> I won't ask who your pays ETOLs or not, but that's a, maybe that's an example. If you don't enforce a law, then it, it loses its kind of, if, there, if there's no consequence, then people don't, don't obey it, Right? So, so we need a source, and we we need a we need an enforcer um, for for the law. And the second thing that that we kind of realize is that if we're honest with ourselves, we're not very good at keeping that moral law. As we go through our lives, and I, I actually want to challenge you, you know, um, try this for for a day, for for a twenty-four hour period. Try to live a perfectly moral life. Try to do nothing wrong, you know, acting right, thinking right, doing exactly the right stuff all the time. Just try it. It's, what you'll probably find or what I find is that it's really hard, right? My, my nature doesn't seem to tend towards that. It doesn't seem to go towards doing the right thing. Rather, I've got to, I've got to continuously extend effort to not do the wrong thing, right? To not lie to my wife or to not fall into the temptation of cheating people or whatever it is. It, 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 it takes effort. It doesn't come so naturally. And when, when we get um, to that point, we, we kind of need to deal, or we need a, at least I need a reason why. why. Why is that my experience? Why is that what happens? And I think it's going to be important for my children as well that I, that I teach them from, from the perspective of their experience as human beings, how, how should they interpret that? How should they interpret um, their, what, they, what they experience in terms of their nature, but also what does that mean in their relation to God? And, and one of the important things around that is in the world, they're going to get a lot of explanations around that, different worldviews telling them different things about, about why that is so. I think one um, worldview, and we can go to that, to that first slide. One of the worldviews that are, that's kind of prevalent um, today in our society is, is humanism, right? Humanism started around the, the beginning of, of, the 19th, of the 1900s, and towards the middle of the 1900s, they, they um, kind of captured what they call the humanist manifesto, the first humanist manifesto, and its basic premise was that the religions of the past had failed us, that we needed something new going into the 20th century, something that met our needs, Right, and they put out these 14 theses of what, um, of what humanism stands for. And just to, to explain it, I'm just going to read a little portion from, from that manifesto itself. So it says, So stand the theses of religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good of life, for the good life, is still the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. So if you can just go to the next slide. If you think about your life as a circle, and this, this, this circle represents you, right? And if we think about the outside of this circle being the behavior which, which is seen, right? The superficial behaviors. Um, when we, throughout the human experience, just press next, 
we find that, okay, these behaviors happen that are not quite in line with this law of morality. They're not, if I'm honest with myself, I don't always act in in the standard even that I have for myself, right? So that's what I see on the edge. I, I lie to my wife, I steal, I do whatever it is. And now, why is it that happens? Well, by implication, what humanism says is at the center, so just the next one, of what we as humans are, we are inherently good, right? We are, we are in essence good beings. And the only reason why this stuff on the surface happens is because we haven't reached that level of progress yet where, where we've kind of, through education and putting in place the right political system and structuring society in a certain way, we haven't reached that point where our outside behavior truly reflects who we are as humans. We've got in ourselves the ability to achieve this, this world of our dreams, right? The utopia or heaven, as it were. And that is in stark contrast with what the Bible tells us. If we think about what the Bible says to us, again, you know, next slide. Actually, you can just go through ahead. The Bible tells us that these, these actions that we see on the surface, these failings to keep the moral law, is not um, a mishap or is not something which is out of sync with who we truly are. Rather, they are only symptoms of a much deeper sickness that we find in our flesh, the sickness of sin. Just go back one, sorry. The, the, the sickness um, of sin. The Bible tells us that right at the start of creation, um, with the first man, God put in place his law, and that's where it says we get the law from, is from, from God himself. He put in place the moral law, the law of God. And he, he put in certain boundaries with men and created this this utopian environment where people were to live in, in perfect relationship with God. But there was one problem, right? One day the tempter came along and he asked the first humans this question, right? Did God really say? Did God really say that if you eat the fruit, we know the story, if you eat the fruit from the tree of the light, you know, that you'll die. Did he really say that? Is he, is he really as trustworthy as you think? Do you, do you really think that you can trust him? How do you know that he's not behind the scenes, you know, actually working maliciously to, to trick you? Okay, and we fell for it. Adam, Adam and Eve fell for it, and they chose this route where they took it into their own hands. They chose to, to, to know um, good and evil for themselves, and uh, via oversimplification, to, to rebel against God, right? To say that I, I, I choose to do that in my own, I, I choose to trust my own devices, my own, um, my own sense of good and evil to get my direction in life instead of, instead of um, trusting God. It's a question of authority. Right? I choose to trust my own authority rather than, than God's authority. And the Bible tells us that that had consequences for us as humans, starting from there, we now live in a fallen world, even though we were made in the image of God, which is good, and because um, God is the image of good, and we were made in His image. Even though that is how we were created, we were tainted, and now we live with this human nature that no longer tends towards good, but it tends towards evil, and we saw, see the evidence of that throughout creation, right? If you're a gardener, and you leave your garden for a few months, what happens? It's not the beautiful plants that come up, right? It's the weeds. It's the the... the Nature itself tends towards chaos, and it's the same thing within us, is we, we no longer tend toward 
relationship with God and moral good, we tend towards evil. So what do we do with that, right? Actually, before we get there, the Bible even goes further than that. Um, I just want to read for us from, from Romans 3. And, and at the start of Romans, Paul is talking about this to, to, the Jews, to Jews and to Gentiles in Rome. He's talking about um, the law that we see, and he gives an argument for it. And then he talks about our position as a result of the fall. And in Romans 3, he starts talking about human nature. One back. And I just want to read for us from verse 9 to verse 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just next slide. But, ooh, I missed a portion. Let me read it from my cell phone Bible. So basically what Paul is saying is that the human nature is, is not good, right? We tend away. And then in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under, that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Bible makes it very clear that our nature is the problem. The problem is not just that we do sins. The problem is that we are sick to the core because of this taintedness that happened at the fall of creation. And under the right circumstances, even if we think that we're good, you know, you ask, I've seen so many interviews of people asking people, people in the world questions like, do you think that you're going to go to heaven one day? And they all say, well, I think I'm a good person, you know. And then usually it's a, it's a bit of a tactic and people start asking them questions like, well, have you lied recently? Have you? And they pretty soon have to realize, well, okay, I've, I've, committed, I've committed some sins, right? Okay, I, I'm maybe not as good as I thought, but no one's perfect. But the Bible goes further than that. It says it's not just that, right? Under the right circumstances, we are capable of worse things than we could ever imagine. The problem is not just that sometimes we fall. The problem is that our human nature is depraved. It's far from God. It doesn't tend towards Him. And, and we cannot do that in our own strength. If I see in myself, and I'm, I'm guilty of this often, you know, but my first reaction when I fail, when I fail to, to kind of uphold even my standards of myself, is I try to fix it. I go, I'm going to join the 5 a.m. club, right? I'm going to get up earlier in the mornings, and I'm going to start working harder towards this. I'm going to expend more effort um, in, order, in order to get better at this. I'm going to try and fix it. But the Bible tells us that is not the way to go when it comes to righteousness. Rather, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Even to those who have the law, even if we understand what the righteous requirement of God is, trying to keep that law is not going to make us righteous. Rather, it shows us, it, um, 
it brings the knowledge of sin. It makes us aware of our inability to keep that. It makes us aware that we cannot, through our own strength, keep that law. Now, there are people who can say this way more elegantly than I can, and therefore I'm going to, to lean on them a bit. C.S., I just want to read us a little piece from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about this. He, said what God, he says, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. What he cares about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality, the kind of creatures he intended us to be, creatures related to himself in a certain way. I do not add related to one another in a certain way because it is included. If you are right with him, you are inevitably right with all your fellow creatures, just as if all the spokes of a wheel are fitted rightly into a hub and the rim, they are bound to be in the right positions to one another. As long as man keeps thinking that God is a type of an examiner who set for him a sort of paper, or is an opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as he is thinking of claims and counterclaims between himself and God, he is not yet in the right relation to him. He is misunderstanding what he is and what God is, and he cannot get into the right relation until he has discovered the fact of our bankruptcy. When I say discovered, I really mean discovered, not simply like in parrot fashion. Of course, any child given a certain amount of religious education will soon learn to say that he, will have, he has nothing to offer God that is not already his own, and that we find ourselves failing to offer even that, but I'm talking of really discovering this, really finding it out by experience. Now, we cannot in that sense discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, we will always have at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we will succeed in becoming completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is, is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to a vital moment in which you turn to God and say, you must do it, I can't. For me, that's, uh, that's really well said, right? The, the, truth of, the truth that the Bible gets us to face is that there is a law that applies on us whether, whether we like it or not, the law of God, right? And the second thing is, there is the fact that we fall short of that law, that we cannot keep it in our own strength. And even if we try our very hardest and expend the most effort possible, we're not going to be justified. We're not going to meet its requirements. That's the bad news. But there is good news, right? The good news is that we do not need to because Jesus did it on our behalf. Let's keep reading in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, of, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Okay, we can actually stop there. What the Bible tells us is that where we were incapable of living a perfectly moral life, where we were incapable of maintaining God's law, Jesus did live a perfectly moral life. He did live a life completely without sin. He did only good to people. He came, he healed people, he loved people, he lived what we would call a, a perfect moral life. 
And yet, for that, he didn't receive the good treatment that he deserved. Instead, he was hated. He was rejected. He suffered, and eventually, he willfully went to a death by the hands of hypocrites for the reason that he took the punishment that me and you deserve for not keeping that law so that we don't have to. And the Bible goes further than that. It says because of what Jesus has done, because of what he did for us on the cross, it's not just that God can forgive us our sins. He, God justifies us, yes, at that point. He, he declares us righteous, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but purely based on the sacrifice of Jesus. But also he gives us a new nature where our nature tended away from God and we had a fallen human nature. God comes and he does a miracle inside of us, right? He turns our nature, he redeems our nature and turns it back to him and a process of sanctification starts, a process through by which God starts making us holy. And the difference is it's not your or my commitment. It's God's commitment. It's God saying, no, you do not need to be sanctified to be justified. You cannot. It's impossible. Instead, I've done the work. You are justified. Therefore, let me sanctify you. And my prayer this morning is really that that that'll become real to us. You know, if you haven't heard that this morning, then praise God. You know, that, that is the gospel. The gospel is that when we come to Jesus, He gives us new life. He forgives us our sins. There, it, The gospel definitely does not say that, that we need to fix ourselves to be acceptable to God. On the contrary, you will never achieve that. It's a free gift. And if you haven't heard that, praise God, we trust this morning that that will really become a revelation in your heart and that you will experience what we call the new birth, where Jesus comes and He makes us, He redeems us, and He makes us new. But also to Christians here this morning, like me, right? I just want to talk to us for a moment as well, because when I became a Christian, I was so aware of my sin. I understood that I've got nothing to bring God. I was aware of the fact that I'm fallen and that there is nothing that I can offer Him. And and I received His grace and I experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. But I just want to maybe encourage us, remind us that we would do good to remind ourselves of this truth daily. That just because we've been walking with Jesus for a few months or years or, or decades, the fact that our righteousness and our justification is not based on our works never changes. There is no point in our journey where we stop becoming an object of renewal. It's as real today as it was on the first day that we became Christians on the first day that God intervened in our lives. And I just, I just maybe want to tell a story from my own life um, of, how, of how this became more real to me. And I hope that it'll, that it'll bless you as well. So I, growing up, I was very aware of, um, of judgment. And I was actually really afraid of it, right? I, I remember when I was like a young boy, I used to lie awake at night and used to think about Judgment Day. And I thought, Yo, if Jesus comes back tonight, I, I played that scene out in my head where he stood and he separated the goats and the sheep, you know, like the Bible says. And, and I was really afraid because I was afraid he would put me on the goat side. I was actually convinced, you know. So I would just pray. My prayer were, were really simple. It was just like, Lord, please put me on the sheep side. That's literally what, you know, what I prayed. But I was, I was, I was aware of that. Um, and people used to come to our school and they used to, to, to give a testimony or they used to tell about what God had done in their lives. And they, they always made 
these, these opportunities for people to respond, to receive God. And I knew, I always responded to that because I knew that my life was not at a place where, no, where it should be. Morally, I was falling short, right? I knew there was a standard that God has, but I was very aware that I don't reach that. And eventually through high school, um, I started making God, God myself, and I don't blame them, I blame myself because it's my choices, but I got into some bad friendship groups, started drinking a lot, um, partying, living you know, a very lawless lifestyle, experimenting with, with drugs and, 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 and doing a bunch of things. And by the time I got to matric, I was still very aware um, that God was real. And, and, and of that standard, but I drowned it out th- with a bunch of things in my life. I kind of remember driving to Cape Town one day, and, and this thought popped up with me, like, if, Cornell, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I knew the answer was no, but I just kind of shrugged it off and went on. Then um, I went to university, and at, at university I went on a first-year's camp, and on that first-year's camp I met people who had something different about them. I'd always known God as a God who judges, a God who maintains justice in the universe that needs to to punish sin. And I understood that somehow, you know, that justice must be done. But they spoke about God as if he was, as if they knew him, as if he was someone that they spoke to on a regular basis, as if he was someone they could share their issues and their problems with, and he actually listened and he responded, you know. And I was like, "What, what is this? I don't understand this at all. And they invited me to, to church and to a seminar one night. It was still in the Nielsen and Stellenbosch. I remember it well. And there were lots of people around. And there was this invitation made to respond to relationship with Jesus. And I was really afraid of what all those people would think about me. I was so, like, um, anxious about that. But I just felt God say to me that night that he, this was an invitation for me that he was inviting me into a relationship with him, and it's going to cost me everything. But this was a turning point in my life. It was an opportunity. And I responded to him. I said to him, yes, God, I, I want to know you. I want to know your love. I want to walk in a relationship with you. And that day my life changed. I, for the first time in my life, I, had, I experienced what the Bible calls the new birth. I had power to leave the lifestyle that I had um, lived up to that day. I left. I immediately stopped doing pretty much all of the sins. You know, a friend of mine saw me like two weeks after that, and they came to me and they said, "Cornell, you know, I, I I heard that you're like you're not drinking anymore, and you're not. That's so lame." And I was, <laughs> I was like, "But the, the 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 thing is, I could see, and people could see that literally my 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 identity, my personality changed on that day, and I became a new person. I experienced the old." Cornell passing away and a new Cornell coming in. I started hearing God's voice for the first time in my life. I started experiencing his love. I joined a community of people um, and had people around me in the res that discipled me and taught me the word of God. And at that time, I I went through our foundations course. It's called the Encounter course now, um, which is about discipleship and spiritual growth. Really want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, um, it was such a blessing to me on my on my spiritual journey, God used it to really heal me and deliver me and do a lot of work in my life. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you haven't at the next opportunity, it's awesome that we get to meet again now in person. Um, and hopefully we'll start that again soon. But, but I went through that and I, I underwent a, a big transformation where, where, where there, were, there was a lot of healing and a lot of deliverance that took place in my life. And at the final seminar, it was about sharing your faith. 
And the pastor actually called me up to, to take part in an example um, that day where, where we did that. And then after the seminar, I was standing with a group of people, and, and in jest, I, I said something about what happened there in, in the front. And I went home, and I became very afraid that I had committed a specific sin. Now, Jesus says in the Bible that there is one sin that will not be forgiven in this life or in the next, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I became super afraid that I had committed that sin. I, I'm, I'm not going to go theologically into that. Henny really helped me in that time. I, you know, I sent him emails and, and asked him all my questions about that. And uh, if you've got questions about that, I'm just going to redirect you straight to him. But, um, but I became very afraid of that. And these thoughts started in my mind that what if it doesn't matter what I do, that God cannot redeem me, that there is no way that I can go to heaven anymore. And those thoughts started causing massive anxiety in my life. I mean, hell is not something we speak about often in church anymore, but it's a really scary place, guys. The finality of hell, that there is no turning back, it almost drove me mad. I started having panic attacks on a regular basis. I, I remember like sitting in my room and these thoughts started coming and I would literally, I would run out of my res room um, and I would be on like hyperventilating. My, my roommate would run after me and he's like, he doesn't know what's going on. You know, he's like, should we take you to the hospital? What should we do? And I, I just struggled to, to, to cope. I remember thinking in those, in those days when I was so overwhelmed by those emotions, considering just jumping off the, res of my, the roof of my res, because I didn't know how to deal with it. I was completely overwhelmed by that, that anxiety and that panic. And that went on for, for a period of seven months, and I entered into, into a very deep depression. I was, I was in a very dark place in my first year. And then I went on a on a campus. We call it Stanis. It's like an um, a, a outreach that, that you do at, at a beach town. And I went on that camp, and, and still, you know, it was in December, and I was still anxious every day. And I said to God, God, I, I can't go on like this. Like, I, I, I've tried a lot of stuff to try and get rid of this. Nothing is working. I, I, I can't live like this. I'm going to go mad. I need you to show me that you love me. What a powerful prayer. When I've asked God that, I've never been disappointed. And amazingly, in my second year, he started doing exactly that. He started showing me that he loves me. And a lot of, a lot of things happen. I can't go into all of them. I'll share one um, example of that. But it was supernatural. I mean, like, one thing is, like, since I've been a boy, I, I enjoy dressing well. Right? It's just I don't understand fashion. I don't follow fashion that's, you know, I, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, I had a specific style, which I liked, and I liked dressing, dressing well. And it was a bit different sometimes from other kids, so I got made fun of at school, um, but it was part of, part of who I was. And in my second year of being a Christian, I became very aware of that. And I started feeling quite condemned about it, because I was like, how vain is this? You know, what, what does it matter how I dress? That's not a very spiritual thing, um, right? And I actually... I started dressing badly on purpose, right, because I felt so condemned about this. I would go to, like, church events, and I would put on my ugliest clothes <laughs> just because I felt so guilty about, about this thing, right? And it actually had a bad, bad impact on my self-image. And also, in, in that year, my relationship with my dad was still um, quite strained. And so I invited him to, to come with us as a church to the Mighty Men's Conference. And my dad 
was really not at a, at a great place um, in his life. And I really had this expectation that God would meet with him, that, that on that camp that something would happen that, that would change in his life. And we went on the camp, and the first night came, and Angus preached, and he made an altar call, and my dad didn't respond. And the second night came, and Angus preached, and he made an altar call, my dad didn't respond. And on the third day, he had to go home early, and I was actually really disappointed. I had had this expectation that God would, would intervene in my dad's life, and, and he hadn't. And praise God, later, my, my relationship with my dad was completely restored, and he also came to knew the Lord or recommitted to the Lord. That's a story for another day. But, but in that, on that day, I was, I was really down. And all the stuff I'd been going through personally as well. And I just said to, to some of the friends who had come with me, I, I said to them, guys, I'm, I'm just like, I'm feeling terrible. Please just, just come and just pray for me. Just pray for me that, I don't know, that, that God would help. And, um, and they came around me and they started praying. And there was Omar Kennedy. Some of you might know him. He's our pastor in George. He was my student pastor. And they started praying for me. And Omar... <laughs> Omar lays his hand on me and he goes, Cornell, you know, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I just feel God says he loves the way that you dress. (laughs) And I I mean, I just started crying because I just realized that was like God putting his finger on me, right? Saying, Cornell, I I love you. I made you the way that you are for a reason. And I love you the way that you are. That applies to to all of us. And then at the end of that year, me and some friends went. Um, we went backpacking in Africa. By that time, I'd gone through a few of these exper- experiences that helped me to experience the love of God um, in a very real way, and my anxiety was better. But when, when we went on this trip, we went to Tanzania. We took trains and, and buses back down to Johannesburg. But um, for, for various reasons, when, when, when we landed there, because of some of the stuff that happened on the trip, I was just really, really got really anxious again. And I started having panic attacks again. Um, and I remember being on, on a train going across Tanzania and reaching an absolute boiling point because I was at this place where I was again having, having regular like daily panic attacks on that trip. And I took my malaria pill, the malaria pills that I was drinking, I read the pamphlet on the inside of the box. Uh, it was, it's a pill called Mephilim. And it said, if you struggle from anxiety or depression, do not drink these pills because they can have long-lasting, and I quote, they can have long-lasting negative side effects on you. That's really vague, you know. Thanks for that, Mephliam. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good, you know. And I was sitting on that train, and I was just like, oh, God, what does this mean? You know, I already feel like I'm going to die. I don't know what to do with these emotions. And now if I get home, I might have to, like, check into a mental institute or something. And I just, I reached the point where, where I said to God, like, God, I'm all out of ideas. You know, I've tried, I've tried a lot of stuff to, to overcome this anxiety, and nothing works. And I can't live like this. Like, you can't live life like this. It's, it's, not, it's not possible. I, d- I don't know what to do anymore. I need you to help me. And, you know, on that train, almost in a moment, God delivered me from anxiety and depression to the point where I've not seriously struggled with it again to this very day. It was, it was a miracle. And um, I also felt him say to me that, you know, in life we're, we're going somewhere. And where we're going, I can't be struggling with that stuff. And I see it now. If I still had anxiety, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. 
I wouldn't be able to be a good husband to my wife. It, it, it was really a miracle. And, um, you know, that was maybe a, an example of it, a, a place where it manifested. But the truth is that just like I was desperate and I had no option but to trust God to deliver me from that anxiety, which is, I believe it was a consequence of, of sin in the world, we need God to deliver us from, from our sinful nature. We cannot do it in our own strength. There is no way that we can do it apart from the grace of God. And sometimes we go through experiences like that where we experience it in a very real way and we become aware of our desperation. And sometimes we're just coasting along life and, and we don't really give it much thought. But it doesn't matter what situation we're in. The truth is that all of us need God to come and save us. All of us need God to do what we cannot do. That's to save us from our sin and all of its consequences. The good news is that that's what Jesus promises. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.